All right, welcome to the Teaching That Counts podcast. Once again, I am the host, Abel Maestas. I am an instructional coach here at Series Unified School District. So we are looking today, we're going to talk about chapters 10 and 11 in Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics by Peter Lilladalt. Once again, I have a great group of teachers with me today, so I'm going to let them introduce themselves, starting with my left. My name is Sarah Mucha. I'm a math teacher at Central Valley High School. My name is Elvis Delgado. I'm a math teacher at Series High School. Diana Andrade, math teacher at Argus High School. Well, welcome again uh, to our discussion, guys. Um, thank you for joining me. And every time we meet, I think I learn something new. And I think our discussions have just gotten richer and richer and richer. So I'm excited to jump into these two chapters. The first chapter is on how we consolidate a lesson in the thinking classroom. So just talking about the issue for everyone out there, it really is how do we look at getting to a place where we're formalizing the learning and, and students are understanding the mathematics from the teacher end. Um, in, in here, he puts the issue as uh, something that he's seen a lot is really just now you try one task. So a lot of the consolidating that he sees in classes is really just teachers showing students how to do something and what he calls that step-by-step -step procedure is consolidating from the top. And he talks about now how we do, do this in a thinking classroom is consolidating from the bottom. So let's just kind of dive in and, and talk about some of the things that really struck us as interesting and um, as all conversations that we've had, how, how do you see this working in the classroom? I'll go and start with something that really struck out to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he talks about the problem. And, you know, for many, many years, the now you try one task is, you know, we think about the um, gradual release of responsibility model where it's, you know, I do, you do, we do. That That's pretty much it. It's the teacher doing the math and the teacher consolidating the math, math as being, hey, this is where everyone needs to be. But he takes a different approach in like this is what we're going to do is we're going to take where the students are and build from that and that's what he means by consolidating from the bottom and I know that the curriculum that we've been using and really the stuff that we've been talking about in the previous chapters really solidifies that for me in terms of how are we taking what the students are coming in with and building from there their the mathematics. Um, a couple things that really struck out to me that I thought was really super powerful. You know, he just kind of lays it out. He's all the problem is that it doesn't work. It's like straight up doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And he says, if it did work, then we wouldn't have all these problems that we have in math, right? If, if the way that math was taught traditionally worked, then why are our scores so low? Why are students struggling in mathematics? Like, why is all of that happening? Well, it just, it's not working. So, the approach needs to be different. And so I thought that was a, a pretty powerful statement to make from the get-go. So I really liked how there were pictures in the book of showing the three ways in which to consolidate from the bottom because I was having a hard time envisioning how to loosely cluster my class when I'm explaining. And we're in my classroom right now and it's a little cumbersome with all the desks. So I forced myself to do this today and I forced students to like, okay, we're going to come over to this board. And I used a different color marker like he suggested in the book to highlight or box pieces that this, that you wanted to highlight from students. And so I tried to strategically pick 
boards that were farther away because he did talk about you want them to walk like this is the whole point of it so we walked to one side of the room we talked about it and instead of me having the students i normally have the students board whoever wrote on the board they explain but i noticed how he said 50 percent of the kids zoned out and i told my students this i go so we're switching this up today i said if i choose your board you don't need to talk you just listen to what other people have to say everyone else talk with your partner why do you think they came up with this table how did they get these y values or whatever we were doing and there was a lot more discussion there was a lot more engagement and then the only thing that's hard for my students is that organic conversation so for students to feel that they can say, oh, well, I think that they did this. Well, I think they did this. So I'm still having to use some of those random selection tools, which I think is fine, but I would like for it to be more organic in my classroom. And I did like that. I told them, you know, I'm bo- I'm gonna be boxing some of your guys' work. It doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It just means don't erase this because I want to draw attention to this. So then they'd kind of, I'd box something and I'd walk away and they'd be like, well, do you think it's right or do you think it's wrong? Like they're all like looking around. And I I also told them that why I liked the vertical whiteboards because I had tried doing uh, group work and having them sit at their, their desk. But I was like, I really, I really didn't like when we did this, guys. And here's why. Because one, I it was really difficult for me to know where each group was at in the problem set. And yep. number two, when your group got stuck, you got stuck and you didn't know where else to turn. I said, so that's why the vertical whiteboards are nice. I can visually do a 360, know where everyone's at, and you can do a 360 or whatever and and see what other people are doing to get, get unstuck. And so they all were kind of nodding their heads like, yeah, okay. So we did the first one at our table group and then we split up into vertical whiteboards. So yeah, the pictures helped with what that was supposed to look like. I'd like to add back to going back to the problem that Abel mentioned. Uh, as I was reading the chapter, I was thinking about my first couple of years when I started teaching math. And I remember there was teachers who say, you know what, this is the way we do things. Uh, and I have my own strategy and they have to do, students have to do the problem the way I show them. Otherwise, they're not doing it correctly. And that really stuck to me for a while because it's like there's way different ways approaching your solution, especially when I started doing after school tutoring and teachers had their own method. And I was like, wait a minute, you're, you're overthinking the step here. Like you could have done a little shortcut maybe, or maybe you could have done something a little bit different before we jump into that next step. And so I was like, mm, this is really nice chapter because it makes sense about consolidating the, the solution for students because if they don't know those, those steps, they're going to get stuck and they're not, they're going to give up. But if they know, if they already have an idea what they know and just, just build on that, that's what really got me into us like, okay, let's, let's figure this out, these levels of what they know and see where they can go from there. Yeah. 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 I think it's important. Uh, and he lays that out nicely where, you know, he describes, you know, just meeting the students where they are, because if we show them, okay, this is, this is the solution, like this is the where I need you to be, or this is the max, right? Unless they're close to that, they have no way to access where they are to that top place where you need to take them. And that's there at the bottom of page 171 where it's too big of a cognitive jump. I also noted on the next page, page 172, about in the middle, where he said that students 
began to mistake being shown how to do it for learning. Mm. Or maybe they mistook like, okay, well, I have it written down in my notes. Okay, now I know it. Like, now I got it. Okay, and I think that's, you know, I've seen that happen where they might be on it and they're with you and they're answering everything and they're doing everything you ask them to do. And then when it comes time to perform, it's kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing, right? So they do have that uh, misguidedness, I believe, when they think they know it because they're doing all the motions you expect of them, right? The mimicking. The mimicking, exactly. <laughs> and I do, uh, I appreciated his last take because when we are implementing these things uh, that he has suggested in this book, and by the way, I, I do appreciate how you said, hey, I read this and I tried it today because I think we're all pulling things and doing it out of the <laughs> fly right. from this That's book. Right. <laughs> and it's exciting, you know, to, to try these things. But I have heard that before, like what he says down there. When students ask, when are you just going to go back to teaching us math? Right? I don't know if anybody else has had that question. But, you know, I have had that. Like, why aren't you just giving us notes on this? Or, can, you know, when are we going to, you know, can you just show us how to do that? So... I do have students, and obviously this kind of goes back to, you know, a, f a few years ago, because as I've read and even as I got into the next chapter 11, I'm like, okay, yeah, I've been doing this. I got away from how I used to do it for several years, and I've been evolving. So some of the things I read in here, it's kind of like, okay, cool. I've evolved, I think, and, you know, this, but definitely a lot more to go, but I have heard that from students. When are you going to go back to just telling us how to do it? Or showing us how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Like stop. Those are stop thinking questions. Mm -hmm. I love how this this really started to pull some stuff together, right? As you're talking, Sarah, I'm thinking, oh, that's chapter five. Oh, that's chapter six. <laughs> like like you're putting it's kind of coming together now. Um, today I was in a class where I was teaching a lesson, a math two lesson on. Um, we were doing sine, cosine, and tangent, and we were going into the inverse ones. But at first. I had them solving the sides of a right triangle. And um, one group was finding the third side by using a cosine. And the other group was using Pythagorean theorem. And I didn't want to stop their thinking. They were on opposite sides of the room, but I didn't want to stop their thinking. I wanted to let that group finish that cosine before I started to consolidate and, and go over the basically the formalized piece and so then this is where it comes in with elvis where there was different ways to do it but they came up with a different way i didn't tell them look you could do this or you could do that then we took let's go over to this board guys so we went to this board brought them over to the to one side what did they do here to find this third side and automatically the kid that did it wanted to say i oh, know i was like no, no no you did the work i want everyone else to think about what you did and then I had them do the same thing. Talk to your partner, think about it. And then they say, oh, they use the they use the cosine to do it. And as I was asking them that, a couple other kids went and they looked over to their board and they looked at that board and they started comparing what they did with that. I said, okay, well, cosine, let's go over this other board. And then we walked all the way to the other side of the classroom and they walked all the way. What did they do here? And they started talking about the difference that you could do both things and still find it. And then I got the question. One kid asked the question, well, which one's better? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Talk to your partner. What do you think? Mm. And then so I turned it back to them. And, and it just there was so much great discussion with uh, different ways to do something that I don't 
I don't think that would have happened if I didn't give them the opportunity to do it. If I just said, look, guys, here are different ways to do it. Like, I just don't feel like they would have gotten as much out of that than what I saw today. So I I loved this chapter and I love the pictures. The pictures were very helpful, especially when um, he talked about like the three different pictures and what they're used for. So when the teacher is just kind of doing the general discussion without writing anything down, that's like a big ideas moment. And then the second way, when the teacher is writing something down, everybody's kind of looking, that's another like, kind of big ideas moment. But the third one, where they're kind of all coming around and the teacher's using the student work, that really resonated. I've been doing that the last, I'd say, about three weeks. And it's pretty powerful when students see that you're using their work to do the explanation. Like, it's no longer my work. I'm not... I'm not the one that's learning the math. You're, I'm using your work to connect it to where we want to be. And I think that's what he speaks here when consolidating from the bottom. And I, I feel like it gives ownership to the students and validation to what they're bringing to the class. And so I, I loved, I mean, I say I love a lot of stuff in this book, um, but to see it in action is, is pretty impressive. And going back to what I think you touched on at the beginning was how this ties in really well with our open up curriculum. Yeah. So, you know, it's all sequenced in our teacher materials. It tells us what to look for, where to start. So it does fit really well with that, uh, with that process of uh, consolidating from the bottom, I believe. Yeah, I noticed in, in one section he talks about, um, I think it's on page 178, another refinement that increased thinking and engagement came from the careful selection and sequencing of what stu students would attend, would attend to during the consolidation. So that right there, that's one of the five practices for orchestrating discussion in mathematics that um, the open up curriculum is built upon, those five practices. So we talked about those and anticipating and those other things so i saw that too I, I think the part that and i'm going to ask this question of you guys too because i think the part that i struggled with in this was how to marry this with like learning intentions and success criteria that we use a lot in in series specifically on the part where it was this is where you all need to be but starting with where all you need to be, sometimes they can't make the cognitive jump and it's not as successful. And a lot of times we talk about that success criteria is, hey, this is where you need to be. So how do you guys see the consolidating from the bottom and the success criteria and learning intentions still kind of working together? That's a really good question. I was going to say that. Uh, and I was thinking about it and going back to the success criteria, uh, something that I've been thinking about it over and over is like it has to be language that students understand first of all because if they don't understand what they're learning or the language they're already lost already lost them so it has to be clear for them to say okay this is exactly what he means by success criteria and I should be able to check this off this off and this off so when we do the consolidation uh, consolidation no, consolidation <laughs> we we look at what the student knows and so can they already check off some of those things and then build up on those those ideas that's what i was thinking mm -hmm. how i look at it at an alternative site right because i have a wide array of abilities and and prior knowledge and what 
we've been doing with the um, the unit, the learning intentions. The learning intentions. That's not the right word. The uh, when we learning progression. The, what we're rolling out, right? The Oh, the proficiency, proficiency scales. scales. Thank That's you. <laughs> I'm like, I have so many phrases swirling in my mind. Right. I couldn't pick the right one. The proficiency scales. So I have been sitting down with the students and, you know, look like, okay, this is, you know, what we need to do. We kind of work from that bottom up. So mm. like, okay, this is where we're beginning or this is, you know. And so far I haven't found anybody that really doesn't have any of those prerequisite skills at all like they all have some foundational pieces which is great because then that gives me an ability to build upon but I you know per, you know tell them all right well we're working on this foundational level and then okay our goal here is to be at the three right the level three of where our target is and focusing on one target like I am doing now in the systems unit that really helps focus that in. So I see where that is kind of like maybe a little bit of, um, you know, difficult for us to piece together. But when you were just talking about that now, I was relating it back to the proficiency scales. We're like, mm. okay, we're going to start at the bottom and we're going to work our way up, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. To add to that, because I know you were going to continue with this, but the gallery walks, right? We get to see the students work, and as we're walking around the classroom, students get to see progression of either their classmates or they're learning as well. Like, wait a minute, that's all I had to do in order to get to the next level. And I feel like that's them consolidating, like they're learning too. Like, oh, that's all I had to do. Yeah. It's very close to it. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm going to answer my own question. Maybe the, the success criteria is kind of like, how you know you're successful in meeting what we're learning about. Like, it's okay for them to know where they need to go, but we're utilizing their, where they're at and their mathematics to get them there. And I think that's the consolidation from the, from the bottom. Not necessarily, look, here's how, you know, you're going to be able to solve a, a triangle, right? You're going to be able to solve for the measures of, a, of an angle in a right triangle. And the way you do this is you use an inverse sign and here's how you do it. Like that's consolidating from the top. But then them knowing that at the end of the day, I'm gonna be able to do this. And then throughout the task, we're utilizing their understanding to then get them to the place that they need to be. I think that's where the two come together. Yes. So mm -hmm. I found this when I first, when I, I think I needed to read this twice, this chapter, because I, I got kind of lost in some of the wording. But it makes more sense to me now, I guess, as I'm talking it out. <laughs> yeah, I, I did write down uh, to the side on that bottom of page 178 where he was discussing the, the sequencing and the consolidation. Like for me, I'm like, okay, that's like that's all on me, right? Like I, and you have to do that on the fly because you don't know what's going to what the students are going to generate on their own. So, you know, you have to kind of be on the fly with that. But. I wrote out to the side, that is the most important part. That's the most important piece. And for me, that's kind of like the aha moment. So when you mention the kids going around are going, oh, uh -huh, okay, I get that now. I call that aha moment. So mm -hmm. it's like, what did I miss? Okay, now I see it. Okay. And I think that's, to me, that's the most important thing. Yes, I agree. Because yeah. it's not coming out of me it's not me telling them that this is the solution this is the way they should solve it but if they see examples from other classmates they also have that 
knowledge of like, hey, he went this route, he went this route, she went this route. It doesn't matter which route I take because they're all going to take me there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, coming in and joining us is uh, Mariana Sandoval. So she's going to, she has something to say too. So um, when you guys were talking right now, learning intention, success criteria, and how that kind of ties in, it reminded me about what we're doing with Stereo Space Learning. And a big part of that piece is student investment. And so when I read that part about um, them really working out their problems on the whiteboard and then doing the gallery walk, it reminded me about how now the students, it's not so teacher-directed, but it's more student-centered. And so the students are actually doing the learning themselves, and they're able to assess kind of where they're at and their classmates are at. And it kind of shows that whole piece of like, they're providing the feedback, they're doing the assessment, and they're more invested in their learning. They want to know, like they want to know the right answer. They want to know what they're going to hear because they're invested. So that tied really closely to me with what we're doing with standards based learning. Yeah, absolutely. That investment is, is key. Um, so one last thing before we move on to the, the next chapter. The I think the part that I wouldn't say struggled with, but um, was, I guess, the most eye-opening for something that I used to do all the time. And I think um, Sarah had mentioned this, was the when, that last micro move. Do not let students present their own work. Like, I feel like it's always been, okay, um, you did great. Can you, can you show us what you did? Like, it was always show us what you did. And then when he talked about that, students just turned them off. Like, mm-hmm. they don't even listen to the other student. And we, as much as we want them to listen to the other student, we're the ones that have the, the authority and they tend to kind of just listen to the teacher a little bit more. So the combination of using student work, but the teacher leading that and using the student work, I have already seen the engagement increase in the attention to other students' work rather than listening to another student talk. Plus, I think the other thing you said were, hey, guys, I'm using your work. You don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. That takes a ton of pressure off that off the student, right, to have to then present it to class. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting because it kind of goes against what I've been doing for so many years. Anybody want to comment on that before we move on to the next I just chapter? want to add one more thing. So... You were talking about how um, when you use the student work, the students feel like validated. One of the FAQs um, was saying it's perfectly okay for the teacher to add to their work, but it's not okay to erase their work and that it, you know, devalues their work and things like that. And I thought that that was really important because I feel like sometimes when I'm working with a group, I'll just be like, well, I don't know about these values. And like, I'm so tempted to just like erase, but it's like, I need to remember that that's probably not the nicest feedback. So I thought that that was really important. Like you can add to it, but, or if, or ask them, can I make adjustments to this? I thought that that was I, good. I, I've been doing vertical whiteboards for many years and I would always erase their work. And now I feel bad. Like, oh, man, I can't believe I did that. So when I'm doing it with students now, I ask them, like, is it okay if I erase this? Or, you know, you did this here. What if you did this here? So I have to consciously think about it before I do it. <laughs> so I, I was just going to add, go um, I'm going to try this with my computer science class. Uh, my students actually ended up developing their own kind of like personal web page. And so instead of having students present their web page as a class, I'm going to have the students just kind of like, hey, tell me what it is. What do you guys think they did here? Uh, where do we go on to the next screen? What is, where can you click on? So maybe that will be a little enticing and then use that in math later. Yeah, I would love to hear how that goes with yeah. a different different uh, subject. 
So let's move on to chapter 11, chapter 11. Oh, we've been waiting for this chapter, haven't we, Sarah? Oh, yeah. Yes, we have. <laughs> we've been waiting for this. <laughs> How students take notes in a thinking classroom. Very, very different um, than, than what we've been used to, especially since we all were math people and gone through math programs. So just a couple of things here. Uh, he talks about the issue being, you know, the I write, you write notes. As in, this is what I'm doing. You write exactly what I'm doing. And then they, the, the students use it. As I read through this, you know, he also talks about it just doesn't work. And for, for a multitude of reasons. But if we think about, I think the question that I, that it just came down to me is who's, the notes for like who's using them and why are they using them are the notes for the teacher because it reminded me of the homework issue like are the students writing down all this stuff because the teacher's telling them to in that case they're doing it for the teacher or are they actually going to be using it later on well when like i don't know if students know how to use notes at home if they're used doing homework i don't think they do we'd have to teach them that or are they using it on a test and do they even know how to organize that or which where we really want to get them is using it because they are using the notes. They're the ones that are taking ownership of what's going on. So I thought that was pretty powerful. You talked about live notes and dead notes. I'm going to just say the before, because I, I want you guys to chime in here, but the one part that really, really struck me out of all this whole chapter was the when he talked about mathematics notes not being linear and organized. And I was like, that's totally true when i'm graphing a graph i have the graph and the table and the equation and i'm like going back and forth. remember what we did here and i i would rem, rem, think about the way that i would instruct something and i swear i think i'd be on two different boards at one time how am i supposed to how is a student supposed to follow that later on like okay where did mr Myers go he went to that board and that board like it just doesn't make sense so i'm reflecting on that and i'm thinking you know what i should have done just I should just copy down those notes and post it on Google Classroom and say, here's the notes. But what are you taking out of it? And that may be what I would do now, but um, it just struck me like, yeah, mathematics isn't linear. Talk about linear equations, but learning is not linear, that's for sure. What do you guys think about this chapter? I'll start off, uh, when I was reading this uh, chapter, uh, you know what remind me of, like when I was reading it, was Cornell Notes for some reason. And I started thinking about back in high school, and I was saying, 11th grade, my avid teacher said, you're going to learn how to use Cornell notes because all of you are expected to go to college, and I want you to be successful. So that's the first thing I started thinking about, like, how do I introduce Cornell notes in my classroom? Because I don't want kids to be writing through the book, navigating every single page to find information that they probably already know. We're only looking for stuff they don't remember. And so I said, I'm going to print out Cornell notes for them, and I want them to write two things on the note side a question or two questions referring back to their notes. And then we ended up with a summary as a exit ticket. That was the idea for today. And for some students that worked really well, from other classes, we just ran out of time. But yeah. we keep trying it. Yeah. yeah, and I think Cornell Notes are one of um, an example of, of the uh, organizational mm-hmm. tools that he had talked about um, that 10th and, uh, what do you say, 8th and ninth graders struggle with, yes. which right. you have ninth graders. So it made sense <laughs> yeah. that they, they don't know what they're writing down. Or what they should write down. Former AVID teacher here. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. Um, Definitely, right? Note taking. When I look back on my, you know, 22 years here teaching math, 
that was, you know, something I always did. And then I, I found the nonlinear, you know, uh, way of presenting them also. But as I became um, an avid teacher, right, and learned more about the, the note-taking uh, process and the Cornell notes, I would implement something very similar. And I would, you know, we would number, okay, we're doing this, or like almost like steps. But, you know, then again, are they doing them for you? Like, because they do mention in here at the end, like, you know, don't grade them, don't check them. As soon as you do that, you're doing it for the teacher now, right. and not mm -hmm. for them. Yeah. And also, you know, when are they gonna use them? So I uh, evolved because I was a teacher that never let their students use notes on a, on a test. But I have evolved and now my kids can use their notes on any type of exam or test that they take. And I think that makes them value that more, right? Let's say he says three weeks from now, yeah. have them go back and, and, you know, ask them something that they could find in, in those notes or if they took the right notes. So uh, it is definitely a process. It struck me that eighth and ninth graders are the ones that need it the most. And if we think right. about that, right, that's probably the craziest, most unorganized time in any child's <laughs> life. Yeah, yeah right? I got a son again. So, and definitely. I do think, um, you know, there is an importance and a need for that. We, as educators, I don't think we should not teach our kids how to take notes. I think that's very important part of our job. How we approach it is definitely what this chapter hits on. And uh, I did, I, I liked the phrase that, you know, he uses. So it's not for me, it's for you. So the future, it's forgetful the future, self. yeah, notes to uh, their future yes. forgetful selves. Right. So I think that was kind of a key thing. And the graphic organizers, that's something I think we probably all have used or evolved from the traditional way, maybe to some type of way that they uh, organize their notes. But yeah, definitely providing them the tools and the resources format even for them to add to whatever they whatever they want to document. How do you do you want to document your learning? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was powerful. Just to add to that, I told that to my students today, like you're gonna be able to use your Cornell notes on the next quiz. Um sorry, notebook, but you can use your Cornell notes. And your kids were like, all right, I'm gonna write down my notes. So yeah, that's that powerful. Yeah, I again liked the pictures. I'm apparently a picture <laughs> right. picture book person. Um, I some of these look a little unrealistic. Let's be real. Um, the type two, those notes look so neat. I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. But I did. Uh, so I appreciated that there were more than one type of notes that they the graphic organizers that they showed. The thing that they all had in common was the amount of space that you give students, trying to make that a smaller space. And I think that, you know, my students have done a lot of mimicking with the note taking, but that's because that's how, when I was in school, it was not that long ago, guys. Uh, uh, it, it was like that too. So I think that I needed to reframe what does it mean? What do notes look like? And, and why are we doing them? I started out with having my students reflect on the learning targets after each lesson, and then I noticed that their reflections weren't very meaningful. So then I changed that document a little bit, and I renamed it 
what he said, the notes to your future forgetful self. And then we had ski week and I had them come back to the notes and they didn't make sense to them. So then I'm like, okay, they need a lot more scaffolding. So I adopted the fourth graphic organizer that they show. And so the only mine has three boxes. So they're going to have vocabulary, definition, big idea, or concepts, whatever they choose for that lesson, whatever that was. In the middle, they had their example. And then the last box was procedures. So after I consolidated, then I talked about what are some good things that we could put on the in this box. Well, this is something new. So this is probably what I would want to put. And here's what I would put in this box and things like that. The only thing that I'm not very good at yet is the annotating. And I think for that, I would need to have something, an example like pre-printed and and that's maybe more direct instruction how to annotate your notes. But I do think that that's, that is one of the three important things that he talks about, the creation, annotation, and the selection. So that's what I grabbed from this chapter. I can see this chapter definitely being something that you would do for the first three weeks um, in your class to really get them to know how to do it. And then as you go along, they can, they'll be able to take ownership of, of, their future forgetful selves but especially for ninth graders they don't know what examples to put on they don't know what vocabulary you'd have to show them at first in the faqs it does talk about after they do their meaningful notes then have them go back into random groups and on the vertical whiteboards come up with you know those meaningful notes so then it's around the room we can talk about it like um then having students go around with the stick three sticky notes and putting it on parts of people's vertical whiteboards that were most meaningful, like what's going to help you the most on the test and have a discussion around that. So I feel like that's a really impactful activity and I want to do that. But like you said, I keep running out of time because I want to get the, they're so into the math on the vertical whiteboards and I'm like, oh, these two groups are doing two different things. Oh, but we only have two minutes left and I have to get them back and I got to make sure I have all my laminated cards and I got to make sure everything's cleaned up. So that's the part that's been the hardest is the time management piece. And I'm, I'm starting at the bell. It's just make, like he says in the book, give them 10 minutes to do these notes. And I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, 10 minutes, that cuts in a lot of time for them to be, you know, talking and rotating around the room and all these things that I want to do. It's like, can we just have a block schedule already? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I ta- I, the lesson I taught 75 minute class and it was, it was a, enough time. It, it was enough time. And the kids I could tell were starting to get drained because they were bell to bell we were they were thinking and they were they were doing some math i I was just gonna say that um i just appreciate this chapter because i was one of those students it said earlier in the book that in the chapter that it was difficult it's difficult for some students based on the survey that they did regarding like i write i write you write classroom it said 14 percent of the students did not take notes at all most commonly they said because it was difficult to take notes and listen at the same time and they would rather listen and to be honest like me going to school even to college it was difficult for me to be able to write everything down and listen at the same time so I would prefer to listen but then I would be missing the notes and then whenever I got home and I really needed to look back and study I was like oh gosh like I don't remember the forgetfulness that came so I just really appreciate this chapter even addressing it because I think that that's huge for a lot of our students. They go through that. And a lot of the ways of how we taught, how we were taught are things that we bring in to how we teach that we don't even Mm -hmm. realize. And I just hear you guys talking about this and it just makes me think of how important it is 
like the book says, to teach how to do something. Because sometimes we just need to take the time to teach them how to do it. I was never taught that. So I had to learn on my own. And I don't even, I mean, I would, I'm learning a lot just by, you know, this, this book study and just listening to what you guys have to say on ways I can even, as myself, I'm still taking notes in professional learning. And this is still happening, you know, in my world. Like, how can we be better at that in general? Yeah, think about the power of this at the beginning of the year in ninth grade and really spending the time to do that. And then by the time they're in 10th grade and 11th grade, they've got the ability to go, I'm going to pay attention and I'm going to do some math today and I'm going to write down the things I know that I'm going to need. Like, that's just, that's a life lesson um, later on. I want to address... I guess it's an, uh, not really an elephant in the room, but it's something that I know that I that I did and I know that a lot of people do, and it's the issue of guided notes. And I feel like I'm going to offend some people here when I say this. I don't know if anybody who's listening to this, this podcast, he talks about – he actually calls them fill-in-the-blank notes, but basically it's guided notes. And he, he says, although it's true that students spent much less time writing – and they did not fall behind. Very few students, 35%, actually spent time listening. And then, uh, in fact, many of the students were observed to not be listening at all and only copying what their neighbors wrote down in the blanks. So I use guided notes a lot too. And I, I feel like guided, like I think that we say guided notes because they're organized and they're less writing, which is true. Obviously, that's what kids do. But there's no listening going on. And there's no thinking and there's no autonomy. So it's yeah. just another checkbox. Like, just oh, I need to get box. this done. Like, I'm gonna check it off, you know. Real quick, going back to the the study skill part, I think because we're high school teachers, we we have this mindset like, well, students should know how to take notes, you know? And it's like they don't. So because right. if you think about it, where do they learn how to take notes? They don't. It's just the copying part, the mimicking. So, um, yeah. But yeah, the guided totally notes, right. they, the only time I would do guided notes is if it was a word problem. And now I'm thinking like, well, was that the, even the right choice? Like to have it printed on the paper for them? I mean, I guess if you want them to annotate and, and do an activity where they're picking out the key information, like those types of things. I think it's good to have things pre-printed, but I don't think that guided notes are setting students up for success for higher education because your professor is most likely not going to give not you gonna give you guided, guided notes. notes. They're <laughs> right. going to keep talking and talking and talking. And I mean, obviously we know that that's not the best way to learn, but that's what some professors are going to do. And yeah. you got to play the game. So Yeah. Yeah, I was when I was in college, we had a professor. She was so fast. She lectured, I swear, she lectured two hour lecture in one hour. And she used all the boards in the front and the back. And uh, I, I stopped writing. I was like, oh, there's no way I'm gonna write all this stuff down. So I stopped writing, I just listened. And every once in a while, I'm like, oh, that's, I'll take that down. I feel like I did this because she was just going too fast. And a friend of mine, he, he always took every single thing down. Like that was the whiz method. And he he spent so much time trying to catch up to her. Um, long story short, I got an A in the class. He got a D in the class. And it's not, I'm not saying that that was the reason, but it's hard to learn when all you're doing is writing and you're not listening at anything that's going on because all you're, you're trying so hard to write down the stuff. And then what happens when you go home and you're trying to do homework? You have no idea what the heck you just wrote down. 
because you couldn't listen. And I think that's the point of this whole thing so far that we've been talking about is who's doing the math? Who is doing the math and who's learning the math? And I think that's the most important question as we found out through this whole book study, right? So we've talked about so much stuff, guys. Um, we're, I think we're about ready here to wrap up. Is there anything last on your mind that you want to say before we close out? Just going back to your point about guided notes, uh, I do agree with what you're saying, but I, I think part of it too is like those guided notes, the way I was talking was for students who needed that extra support. It should have been for the whole class. It should only be for those students who actually need the support. Yeah. It should not be for every student. And you know, like sentence frames, right? Yes. Like I, I don't, sentence frames are great. Can we make sentence frames a thinking activity so that students are having more ownership of that sentence frame? I think that that's the way that I'm thinking now. Is like all those tools, all those EL tools, all those things. Can we make them a thinking activity so that students are doing the thinking and then we're consolidating that information? I, I, I don't know. That's, I guess I do know. That's my, my wonder and my hope. I think we can do that. I had a curriculum one time that had the guided notes and it was horrid. Like I was like, nope, not doing it. I think I, you know, maybe started out and, and like he said, the kids just listen for the one word that they got to put in the blank and then they tune you out for the, you know, until they hear the next word or they, what was that? What am I supposed to put here? You know? So, uh, that I was never a fan of guided notes or fill in the blank notes at all. I wanted to go back to, what you had mentioned regarding um, college, right? and and if we are preparing students to go on, um, you know that's that is something that as high school teachers, right, we do need to equip them with that ability to take notes. So if even just in the last three years since the pandemic, that college course has changed so much, and I have my daughter in college, and I see some of the struggles she has with maybe you know things that are online and maybe all the information's online and she doesn't know where to begin. And, and so, you know, we kind of have to think about, um, you know, we don't want to inundate our math class with note taking, but it is something we have to balance and make sure that we are teaching them to, to make those meaningful notes for them. And then one other thing I wanted to mention and go back to what Sarah had said about the time issue, because I've run into that too where, and actually what I'm doing right now in my class, uh, it has been over the course of three days. So how do I do that, like on the vertical whiteboards, and then it's like, okay guys, class is over, and then the next day I can't recreate that on the vertical whiteboards. Um, and then also graphing is difficult. Mm. So I, I just wanted to throw that out and just kind of maybe see if anybody had anything yeah. to add to that. Yeah. So um, first, um, those of you that are listening, thank you for sticking to this one. This is, a, I think, a longest podcast we've done, but there's so much good information that we've talked about. Um, I would say, and he talked about taking a picture of the whiteboards, but I did something this last time is I took a picture of the whiteboards and of two different groups' solutions, and then I used it the next, the next day and put it on my slide presentation and I asked the students which one is right go ahead and talk to your partner about which one do you think is right and why and I use that as a thinking activity so I brought back the information that they were doing the previous day so I think maybe as a teacher you take a picture 
upload it to a slide presentation and then the next day look hey this is what you guys had written last time where can we start building from that again so that seemed to work out pretty good the graphing is hard i i was in a sketching unit and i was like okay and now we're transforming functions so i'm giving them piecewise functions that they have to transform and i just have to be okay with that it doesn't always look pretty but they have the concept they're just doing you know x y axis with tick marks and they're trying their best so yeah, they're ugly, but which is a good skill to have, by the way. It is a good skill to be able to draw something from freehand, to be able to sketch a parabola or sketch a line, right? So I think that's building up their math proficiency in in that. So um, I, you know, we can talk forever, um, but uh, I I know that I don't want to make the podcast too long. Next time we talk, we're going to talk about how are we evaluating students in a thinking classroom and what type of assessments and formative assessments are we using. So we're coming close to the end. We're already, we're going to be talking, uh, we're, we only have three more practices left and then we're done. So, uh, you know, those of you out there, come back, join us next time where we talk about those two. Thank you again for joining me today. Again, always a great discussion so thanks a lot and we'll hear you next time